Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and our guest for the month of March 2016 is Susie Monaghan of Ithaca College. Susie is the supervisor of audience services. Now, when I went to do my research on Susie, who I happen to know, by the way, she's a friend, uh, I was actually kind of stunned to find it was way more to her than I'd even suspected. Spoiler alert, we didn't get to half the things we wanted to talk about. And honestly, I didn't even get to audience services. But uh, it was a really good conversation, as I think you'll find out. So kick on back, relax, and enjoy. I started looking up and I went, I went to your webpage. And it was just, it was item after item. And you do this and you do that. And I don't think you've probably slept in the past 10 years or something <laughs> like that. Um, you are the supervisor of audience services, which is a sounds like a pretty generic title for a billion and one things to do. Mm-hmm. You mentor the theater arts management students, the TAM students, as they gain practical experience promoting events and running front of house operations for Ithaca College Theater's main stage productions, and that's right off the webpage. So I'm a TAM student walking into Ithaca College for the first time. And, you know, I walk into the classroom or walk into your office. What's going to happen between us for the next couple of years? I mean, what, what happens with these students? Wow. Um, well, I would say the majority of the students who are attracted to the TAM program at Ithaca College are want to come here because it is hands-on. And they're getting experience running the theater as soon as they get here. So literally, a student comes in the end of August. By the middle of September, they've learned our ticketing system and are selling tickets. And they're shaking, you know, while they're answering the phone. And, you know, I mean, there's a big learning curve there. But we have them um, head ushering. We have them doing promotional activities. We have them working in the concessions bar. As soon as they start you know, their their path as a TAM. And then, I mean, to be totally honest, we don't know what this field is going to be like in five years. So we really step back from teaching a lot of technical knowledge. When you say you don't know what it's going to be like in five years, you mean technically? You mean it's yes. it's don't teach them this now because it won't be relevant in five years? Correct. So how much am I going to teach? Okay, ten years ago when I started... I would have taught how to write a press release. I still do teach that. But how much am I really going to spend talking about print media? Uh, you know, and how much am I really going to talk about Twitter? When I, And I do do these things, but I don't know what their place is going to be in five years. So it becomes really important for us to teach management skills and to have students learn the soft skills of how to manage other students, uh, how to manage from below, as we call it. So, you know, um, how do you talk to people in authority and how do you tell them how to do their job better, you know, in a sensitive way. Um, But really the program is predicated on the students who are, you know, juniors and seniors mentoring the freshmen and, um, you know, bringing them along. And so they do things like evaluate each other, you know, uh, midway through a semester, at the end of a semester, and they really learn how to critique each other in a positive way and to get a critique. And those kind of, you know, organizational behavior skills that are not so much about technical knowledge because, you know, if we look at the way ticketing was 10 years ago versus the way it is now, I mean, we wouldn't have seen that. I mean, I don't want my students to actually work in a ticket office that they have to pay staff people. I want them to look at a model where everything is going online and, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the service is provided in a different way on a different platform, but not through, you know, actually selling a ticket. I'm, I'm, I'm used to, I'm dating myself here, but I'm used to paper tickets coming in the mail and I'm used to, you know, tickets that I can hold in my hand. Um, and yet because I work the Ithaca Fringe and I'm worried about, you know, getting credit cards this year, I just got my first square reader. Okay. which I've never used before. Yes. And all of a sudden, there's no ticket. It's just you're registered online someplace, ding-a-ding-a-ding, and 
again, it's changing. Who would, who would have foreseen this 15 yeah. years ago? Yeah. yeah, and about half of the students in this program at any time are working on marketing and promotion, and that landscape has changed so, you know, drastically. Uh, so, so? Well, something like broadcast media. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you name me one newspaper, and I mean online newspaper, that a anyone under 30 reads with any kind of regularity? I mean, it's just not how these folks are getting their, um, their news or their, you know, critiques of plays or their information about what to go see culturally, what to experience. How do they get that information? Well, this is the thing, it's splintering. So every person kind of, you know, creates their own menu of, um, of news feeds that they're getting depending on what their interests are. And it, it's, it's very difficult to uh, nail down how you, you know, make uh, going to see a particular show the thing that everybody has to go do. You know, it's not like getting that New York Times review. You know, mm -hmm. now you just find that the reviewers that we grew up, um, you know, thinking they had the silver bullet, they're following often mm -hmm. the trends rather than setting them. So, um, well, it's clearly, I mean, thousands and thousands of people now have access to. It, broadcast media in one form or another, everything from pages to, to online, where only a select few used to have it. Yeah. You know, it used to be like Rex Reed and John Simon yeah. and all that sort of yeah. stuff, and they'd get up there and excoriate yeah. the hell out yeah. of somebody. Yeah. Now it's like, you know, my friend Bob went to see the yeah. play, and that's all over Twitter. And you have stars, and you have likes, and you, you know, yes. when you're, you're rating restaurants that way, and you're rating hotels that way, and cars, so why shouldn't a theater performance be the same way, if that's the way, you know, if that's the way our culture is moving? So you've got a lot of um, younger people who will have, you know, be following f fan pages of a particular, you know, celebrity that they, you know, um, that they love, and, th you know, maybe they'll be following 20 people like that. So if that person, that person becomes then very influential in saying, oh, I just went to see this show last night, you know, you should really check it out too. And then, you know, they tweet that out to 50,000 people right. and yeah. it becomes important. Um, it's, it, it's really interesting. And, and, you know, bloggers can come out of nowhere and become mm -hmm. really important to the whole um, criticism scene. Uh, so, you, you see what I'm saying, that I really, to serve my students the best, I need to be teaching them to be looking at the next thing and to be learning these, you know, basic management skills of, um, you know, how you treat people right. Um, and, you know, that, that includes marketing and promotion, you know, how you're honest, credible, and, you know, um, really thinking about lo loving the work that you're promoting mm -hmm. and loving your potential audience and bringing them together in a relationship doesn't always succeed, but you know that's that's the goal. We can try. Yes, exactly. What kind of student? What kind of student walks into Ithaca College? I, I ask because I'm a theater addict myself. I always have been, always will be. Um, and yet I never thought of going into theater arts management because I want to be directing, I want to be acting, I want to be writing, I, wa I want to be painting sets, cleaning bathrooms, whatever that means. Um, what kind of student gets attracted to managing the house, yeah. front and back, yeah. for theater? Yeah, it's, it's, we're always uh, asking that question. And... I wouldn't say there are a lot of 17-year-olds who even know what theater management is, but the ones who do find us, who want to go to college and who want yeah. to pursue this career, they find us. So there aren't a lot of programs around the country. 
So, uh, you know, we would have students, yeah, most of the students come from the Northeast, but we, you know, we interviewed a student from Vienna, Austria, actually, uh, wow. a few weeks ago. So we actually just round, um, wound up our uh, interviewing for the class of 2020, believe that. And, um, you know. It's 2016 now. <laughs> yeah, so the ones coming in wow. are 2020. Okay. And, um you know, so they come in, and I would say almost to the letter, every student has said they were performers in high school, and at some point when they're starting to consider what their career is going to be, they say, I want to pay a check. I don't want the, you know, instability of going from job to job to right. job. So how can I stay in the theater but have that stability. And they find these other careers like marketing and um, you know, the, the audience services careers that suit their personalities uh, better. And I, w I would say almost every one of them describe a trajectory like that. Mm. And um, so it's interesting. I, I would say there's a spectrum. There's students who, this is a Bachelor of Science degree, so there's a lot of business classes. Um, some of our students are very strong in numbers, some are not, uh, and some are quite creative visually, for example, in creating materials for promotion. Some are not, you know, so there's kind of a spectrum, yeah. uh, but it seems to be that, you know, either you are, um, you know, a creative thinker in terms of marketing, uh, or you're a, a great numbers person who, you know, loves your spreadsheets and organizing everybody and um, sort of a project management type person. Yeah. I was just going to ask, how, how difficult can it be to pursue an acting or theater or directing, what, whatever, you know, the, the, the lights on you portion of this and still have the job that puts food over, you know, food on your plate and roof over your head in theater arts management. They both seem to be incredibly time-consuming because I know from, you know, it's theater arts management is no easy, easy career. Well, again, there's a huge spectrum. I mean, some of our regional theaters, as you know, have gotten enormous. So one of the mm. first things I do in my promotion and publicity for the performing arts class, one of the first days, is I bring out the staff page from Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., and see the, you know, scores of people who work there in theater management. And, you know, some of them are doing design, some of them are doing company management, some of them are doing outreach, government relations, um, development, obviously, fundraising is a huge part of that. Uh, but, you know, if we're talking about an industry as a whole across the country, we have some very large not-for-profit theaters that are employing thousands of people. And, you know, frankly, the students coming out of our program have a really good shot at, you know, entry-level jobs in those, right. um, in those theaters. So I would say it's not so hard for them to find those positions. Um, the, the challenge is to keep them in theater once they've been out for a few years because, right. of course, if you're great at fundraising and you've had a few years' experience, you're going to make a lot more money in higher ed fundraising or in, you know, hospitals and healthcare fundraising, you know, than you are in theater. And so that becomes challenging for students who are, you know, in, in New York, Chicago, L.A. They're saying, yeah, I think I need to go the money route and, yeah. um, you know, become a great theater fan but uh, no longer work in the industry. Um, because their skills are frankly so marketable that you know other industries pick them up. Right, theater can't afford to keep them. Yeah, I I I know from talking to folks around the country that the Ithaca College Theater Program, <clears throat> across the board, is one of the most respected, well ranked. Um, how many uh, schools would you say in, in the country have theater arts management programs? Do you know this? And then I want to ask you, how many students do you have per class per year? Oh, okay. Uh, you know, there are maybe a dozen that I know about and hear about consistently. 
uh, year by year when we happen to ask students once they've matriculated here, you know, where else did you apply? Mm -hmm. uh, but I wouldn't say there are a lot that are strictly theater management. There are arts management uh, programs. And now we start to see programs that are arts entrepreneurship, which is breaking the sort of divide between um, you know, for-profit and not-for-profit theater, which is looking at small creative companies and startups. So um, um, a program like Drexel mm -hmm. is really coming on strong with this uh, arts entrepreneurship degree, which uh, they kind of throw the students into this creative, um, they have a great building, you know, in downtown Philadelphia, and they're all mixed in together. And it's, you know, what great app can they develop together? Or, you know, what service can they provide? And they are looked at as sort of starting businesses. So we don't, we don't do that model here, right. um, but we're starting to see that there's an appetite for that out there. Um, Syracuse has, you know, kind of similar programs too. I think theirs are more geared towards um, music. But it's looking at and you know an arts entrepreneur as one of the you know um, emerging players here. Whereas, you know, we would typically have looked at as arts administration as being a staff that supports a bricks and mortar theater. You know, that has a season and all of those you know traditional attributes. Um, you know, coming out of the not-for-profit theater movement. Okay. Yeah. I want to take a sh uh, bit of a detour here. Okay. Um, you also teach Introduction to the Creative Economy, uh -huh. and I want to know what the creative economy is. Okay. The creative economy is looking usually at a geographic area and usually a struggling geographic area. So it could be um, upstate New York post-industrial um, areas that are looking at reinventing themselves, um, that their traditional economies are not working anymore, and that they're looking at the arts as being, if not, uh, using this word again, silver bullet, at least um, a potential for a way to um, attract younger people in particular back into uh, struggling areas and to giving them a playground for creating artistic work. Um, so how does policy, how can policy sort of fan the fires of um, people who are coming into these struggling areas and who are, you know, maybe they're buying up uh, disused loft space. I mean, we call this the Soho effect. It happened, you know, 50 years right. ago in Soho. And I was there. <laughs> and, you know, now we're seeing it most recently in Detroit. Yeah. Detroit has had this, you know, complete turnaround. Not complete. It's emerging as a turnaround, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, knowledge economy jobs, creative economy jobs. And, um, you know, it's it's a lot about, again, a lot of small activity, um, you know, this isn't the, the company of 5,000 people that's going to come in and turn things around, though in the case of Detroit it kind of was. You know, Quicken Loans was the guy who, you know, uh, really uh, drove, has driven the, the Detroit turnaround. But it's also looking at it from a policy point of view. You know, how do you support people in creative industries who are um, who want to be there in this place? You know, they mm -hmm. want to have their little, uh, you know, farm to fork restaurant or their, um, you know, boutique that's craft based or their um, film festival or their theater company. Um, you know, how, how do you keep all of these people afloat and look at it as they're all connected? Not that they're individual businesses, but that they're creating a scene, you know, that then people want to come down and come see that play. And then they want to go into that boutique and they want to eat at that restaurant or go have a coffee or go have a drink afterwards. And that they're all interconnected and kind of understanding that they're supporting one another's um, um, industry. Uh, so, so, so in a sense, they're each other's anchor. Yeah. 
You know, and there isn't th this idea of relying on, you know, one or two companies to keep a community afloat mm -hmm. is, I mean, we, we saw this in Corning nearby here, um, you know, again and again, and, and upstate New York has relied a lot on casinos yep. and a lot on prisons um, to, you know, please come here, you know, save our town. Either of which I want anywhere near where I happen to live. Well, uh, and, it's and this is the problem, you know, it, it doesn't serve that um, that purpose of keeping young people who grow up in a place to, mm -hmm. to see that they have a future in that place. Um, and it doesn't create that idea of a scene. Um, now, Corning, very interestingly, really supported the development of a scene in their downtown. So Corning Incorporated right. supported the development of a scene in Corning, the town, and, you know, m made a lot of concessions. I mean, they weren't concessions because they were building, you know, with this mm -hmm. in mind, but to keep restaurants in the, you know, in the downtown area, attract new restaurants to open up galleries, to keep them open. I mean, well, that, that could only benefit them. Yeah. I mean, Corning yeah. is the Corning town. Yeah. Right, it's yeah. and anything you have to build the town up because you don't want to have Corning in the middle of an extremely low rent area because nobody's yeah. going to want to come there. Right, nobody's going to want to go near Corning because right. they have to go through the town. Right, so it makes perfect sense that they would. Am I using the wrong word? Gentrify, upscale kind of thing yeah. to yeah. Uh, yeah, make the town pretty yeah. and yeah. Yeah, and think about Corning's need for a very high class workforce, super educated, mm -hmm. very high technical skill. Um, these people can go anywhere. Absolutely. So if they come to Corning and it's a deadbeat place, they're going to say, yeah, no, I'm going to go, you know, I got this other offer in, you know, uh, Mountain View or, you know, wherever. wherever they do glass. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's, um, that's definitely a lot of pressure on them to make it seem like there's a scene there and that it's thriving and that, you know, we want you there. And that, that's, that speaks to diversity too, because um, you know, a lot of folks are coming out of programs who are not necessarily uh, looking like, you know, white Americans who mm -hmm. Corning wants to attract. And um, so it's important that, you know, people feel like when they walk down the street, people aren't staring at them. If they, uh, you know, worship differently, that that's okay. If their kids go to the high school, um, they're not, you know, taunted. Making diversity the norm. Yeah. yeah, and how do you do that in a small town, in a small, you know, white town, which, you know, a lot of central New York is. Right. We, we know it's changing, but um, this has been, you know, the struggle, uh, and not obviously just here, really, um, in post-industrial places uh, with lower population all over the country. But, you know, the good news is that some of the strategies are so incredibly cool, um, like Paducah, uh, Kentucky, for example, did this brilliant thing. It was probably about 10 years ago where they noticed that their downtown was really failing. People were leaving houses, uh, not even selling them, just kind of walking away from them. They had a lot of disused right. housing stock and basically set, sent the word out across the country, if you're an artist, you can have your housing for free in Paducah, Kentucky. And a lot of people took them up on it and just said, yeah, you know, I live in, you know, St. Louis or in Atlanta, and it's too crazy for me to try right. to do my work and, you know, do my art and, you know, pay my mortgage. And they, they moved out there. And the tipping point, I think they said, was like when the 27th house, just something random like that, once they had gotten the 27th house, then it became an artistic town. And, you know, people had kind of cafes and opened, you know, art houses for um, film. And uh, I haven't been there yet, but I'm really curious. Uh, I've been yeah, following so this story. Yeah, so am I. I've never heard about yeah. this at all, yeah. but it sounds like an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you truly had um, about as bleak a downtown picture as you can imagine right. um, when this started out. And they had absolutely nothing to lose. 
and it was just creative thinking again in terms of policy you know how do we juice this how mm -hmm. do we just kind of put ourselves out there and say just give us give us a try you know take a look and um, I think they even had loans for construction you know low interest loans that they made to people um, but you know think about it from their point of view ten years later they now have all of these houses on the tax rolls right. that were giving them absolutely nothing so yeah. it, it it's long-term thinking creative thinking um, on we're, we're not known for business-wise <laughs> in this country and yeah. yes I know how that's gonna sound but whatever um, you have to spend the money to make the money and without without putting it out there without allowing these things to happen it's not going to happen yeah. okay I mean it, it can only benefit you from you know the initiative that you take to draw all these people in because that is what's going to give the community its character yeah. all right whereas there's not going to be much else of anything a bunch of empty houses yeah. and that's not going to do anybody any yeah. good I want to make a bit of a jump shift here, because sure. we're talking about artist entrepreneurs going into places that are atypical, and I'm going to, s and you do dozens of presentations all over the place, renowned speaker. You did one which I definitely want to talk about, and that is how do the artist entrepreneurs in the west of Ireland's creative enterprises, all right, make sense of their role and value their remote location. Mm -hmm. I have toured Ireland. It's one of my favorite places in the world. My wife dragged me all, didn't drag me. I mean, she, it's, we, we drove all over the country. It took us about five hours. Um, True. It's small. Yeah. It's a sm I, I get, you know, it's, I'm from New York. I'm from the United yeah. States. I'm not used to small countries. Yeah. Yeah. But we did go to the West, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Yeah. I mean, if I could find a way to support myself, I'd move there now and open up a small theater yeah. and do all that sort of crazy fun stuff. Um, but can't yet but uh, I, I want to ask you the question how do these artist entrepreneurs go to the west of Ireland where there are no big metropolises right um, and find their way yeah well the, the way they've been able to do this is through technology and through accessing markets via the internet which is really exciting. So a person can live in a remote county. You know, say the population, like Tompkins County, is 100,000 people. They can't probably find the market for their work among those 100,000 people in a way that they're going to be able to survive, put food on the table, pay their mortgage, put shoes on their feet, etc. So, but as soon as you are able to sell things online, um, the picture changes. As soon as you're able to go across Europe, which these people do, and do craft shows, get people interested in your work, and then communicate with them online, you change the picture dramatically. So I'm thinking of a jeweler who was head of a craft collective in Donegal who I spoke with, very, very savvy woman from a family of entrepreneurs. You know, they owned bars, they owned the, you know, funeral parlor, you know, in this town that she was in. And she was very gorgeous uh, work that she made as a jeweler. Well, you know, she just hustled and would get out there at, at these craft shows in, you know, uh, England and France and Scotland and remember you know they're in the EU and so it mm -hmm. go jumping from country to country is not a huge deal it's not expensive um, but then she's able to maintain these relationships online um, you know show her work online um, but then she also worked with other uh, craftspeople in Donegal and um, have branded themselves as a collective so that you go on that website and you see the person who's working in you know fiber arts and the person who's woodworking and her work as a jeweler and somebody else as a knitter and you see all this very high-end gorgeous work um, th they also opened up a pop-up shop which um, of course it, uh, they only open it during the tourism season which starts on St. Patrick's Day and ends you know sometime around September 
and um, you know, but they're really able to cater to tourists who might just wander in. Um, but the internet has really given people the opportunity to maintain relationships, and that's true for us too in theater, and that we're able to have somebody know about us in Kansas who wants to stay connected, and they can do that via social media, and um, you know, maybe they'll come out once a year and go to the Fringe Festival or come see the opera at Ithaca College, you know, that that's kind of their thing, mm. and we know that about that person. Um, so I think that's the great news, and I, I met people who were running festivals in um, several different, one was a Fringe Festival, in uh, in Galway, one's the Galway International Arts Festival, um, Galway Film Festival, and these people can have a profile that is truly international, and bringing people in from all over Europe, uh, you know, Australia, Canada, the U.S., and they can maintain these connections throughout the year, and then people can say, "Oh, yeah." The arts festival, let's see who they've got lined up. Is it worth it for me? Is that going to be my vacation this summer? I'm going to go over there because I love, you know, so-and-so who's performing there this year. And um, so it's very different than the idea that, you know, the, those four million people who live in Ireland are your market. It's, they're not. And particularly with the huge recession that they got clobbered with in 2009 and that they still haven't really emerged from, they have had to use that idea of other people's money, you know, OPM, mm -hmm. uh, and, and whether that's a combination of tourism and just, you know, finding those cultural omnivores, you know, the cultural mavens who love you and who love your brand and who want to be ambassadors for it wherever they may live. Uh, so that's been really interesting. I am not sure still that on a policy level the country is doing all they can to support these people. But what I was trying to shed light on is the fact that culture does not just happen in Dublin, big city, which mm -hmm. we have the same you know, idea here in this country that culture only happens in big cities. And the fact is that there's incredibly creative people who have a lot of freedom, actually, by living in rural areas um, or less densely populated areas who are doing fascinated, fascinating work, and their market may not be any of their neighbors at all. Right. You know, I mean, there's, there's a guy I can think of who did monumental sculpture in County Clare. I mean, none of his clients are in County Clare. He'd probably work on one or two pieces a year and, you know, put it on a ship and it goes somewhere else. But there he is. He's got the foundry and he might open the foundry to anybody in County Clare who wants to come down and, you know, um, get their work made there because he doesn't need it all the time, you know. So he's this incredible resource, but he's got a truly um, international profile for his work. So... Um, How do we manage without the Internet? Because know. this is all Internet-based, and I can do something here in, in little old Ithaca, New York, and I could have clients in Japan. I could have clients in South America. I could have clients in, I don't know, Truxton or someplace like that. But the age of Willie Loman is finally and completely over, it seems. You don't actually have to be anywhere to do anything anymore. You mentioned that Ireland probably wasn't putting enough support into this as much as it could. What, what would you recommend? I think... The country, um, it's, it's very challenging. I just saw their debt ratio. I think it's the worst in the world. So they obviously have some serious financial um, uh, shoring up to do. But weren't they, the weren't they like mega-booming about 15 yeah. years ago? I, I, yeah. I, it's, I remember a bunch of people were getting obscene amounts of money. People are taking out mortgages for 120% of the value of their land. Wow. wow. Yeah, that Celtic tiger was yeah. uh, real, a time of excess. And um, there w we were there in 2011, I think, right after the boom had happened, and you saw these second homes that had been sort of 
half built and walked mm -hmm. away from in um, County uh, Cary. Um, but in terms of policy, I think it, my image is of fanning fires. You don't start things from scratch. You look at those people who are already doing these, you know, working on a shoestring, doing these incredibly creative collaborations like the woman I talked about in Donegal, and you say, what do you need from us? You know, how can we support what you're doing? Do you want to send your whole Donegal designer makers over to X, Y, and Z craft uh, fair in the United States or in, you know, uh, France or Italy or Spain or wherever? Um, is, do you need that from us? And supporting individuals who seem to be really on the forefront and already being really scrappy about managing resources. Um, and, and what's nice about a country that small is that the people, the, the policymakers in Donegal do know this person. <laughs> they already know her yeah. because she's already made a name for herself as somebody who wants to be successful, you know, using the arts and on and on. I mean, um, every people across the, the country would know um, John Crumlish, who runs the Galway International Arts Festival. And, you know, I mean, he, he would be a player in um, Irish, uh, the Irish arts more broadly written than just in his particular enterprise and in his particular area. Uh, but I think it's listening to these people, looking at what would really make a difference for them, um, and supporting them and maybe using them as a spokesperson for going to other counties that are struggling and are looking for resources and letting them mentor other, you know, for example, craft collectives or theater festivals, you know, that are just sort of um, getting started. And, you know, here's some things you might think about in year three, in year five, in year ten of, of what you're doing. So, um, I don't think anybody who does the 10,000-mile-high policy uh, approach is going to be very successful, particularly when you're talking about the arts because, you know, <laughs> the, what I really found out about these artist entrepreneurs is that they are not motivated by money. And that is very hard for people to understand who are in the policy seat. And well, because money drives everything, and honestly, uh, being in being in the creative arts, especially in theater, you know, you're going to be eating pop tarts until you're 49. Yeah, yeah, yes. And so, if you look at, and there have been many great studies about what motivates these folks. The studies have all been in Europe or Australia. I don't know why we're not studying these folks in the U.S., but um, we're I, not. I think we have a fear of creative people over here. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, so if you look at what motivates these folks, it's bringing a cool idea to fruition. Yeah. You know, so if you look at your work as an entrepreneur, you know, putting this festival together, it's certainly not to get rich. You know, it's because you think it's the right thing to do, and you think it would be really cool, and you want to bring all these people together who maybe don't know each other or haven't worked together, and, you know, what's going to happen? I, I, there's a great designer here in the area who she calls them the what-if people, and she kind of defines people as, well, either you're a what-if person or you're not, but the people who are what-if people get together and say, what if? What if this? What if that? Yeah. And um, frankly, money is, yes, we all hit our heads against the wall and say, why wasn't I thinking about money? Now I'm in debt, you know, yeah. now I, you know, I mean, we all have those moments, but when you talk about what makes you stay up late at night, you know, whether it's making jewelry or writing a play or writing a grant, you know, to fund the, it's, it's not about the money. It's about the passion for the work. It's about what you do and what you love to do for whatever twisted, sad reasons you have for not going out there and being an accountant or, yeah. you know, yeah. a lawyer or yeah. somebody that can own a mega home on a whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, f I find that l many of the arts entrepreneurs, if we can keep using that phrase, 
are very good at changing their language models, et cetera, for the policymakers to have them understand. But I don't find that the policymakers really make much of an effort to understand the artist entrepreneurs. And I think more and more they're going to have to do that and really um, appreciate the impact that these folks are making. Why do you think so? I mean, because um, from my experience here on the other side of the bubble, watching the policymakers we have here, the only way you can get access to them is if they you have something they want. Mm-hmm. What would these artists have to attract the attention of policymakers? I think it's how desperate the policymakers are. So, uh, getting back to the creative economy mm-hmm. model, if you look at downtown Las Vegas, which was dying, it had been you know booming probably until maybe about the 70s, and then the basic the strip moved out of downtown Las Vegas and moved to another part of the city. I don't know. I've never been there, so I can't quite picture this, but this is what I understand it to be. Um, You know, know, so downtown Las Vegas had no income base for taxes, Mm -hmm. um, had lots of crime, uh, drugs, prostitution, et cetera, you know, serving the Strip, but not um, benefiting from the sort of financial... from the profit of this trip. So those policymakers were completely desperate. And Tony Shea, who is from, oh, it's the it's the shoe company. I'm totally, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll think of it. A bit huge online um, apparel company, uh, you know, said, I want downtown. I want downtown Las Vegas. And they, you know, they rolled right over and gave it to him. And mm. he wanted, he, he located his um, company down there, Zappos. That's his company, okay, Zappos, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so all they, they bought uh, City Hall, if that isn't symbolic. They bought City Hall and made it into their, you know, corporate headquarters. They, you know, had this idea, well, let's have cool little shops and bike repair and bike rental and, you know, We'll have skateboard shop and, you know, everything people under 40 like to play with, you know, Mm -hmm. we'll have shops and we'll inspire these entrepreneurs to to come and and to um, to locate here in downtown with us, understanding that, you know, we're bringing several hundred people who need to eat lunch every day and who who want to play. Uh, you know, on on their breaks because we know with these corporate, um, with with a lot of the models of these online companies, the expectation is that you're working 24-7. So if you want to go off and play for six hours, nobody's going to bat an eye. So, you know, how do you bring those amenities right into the, you know, corporate headquarters? Um, And obviously we know about, you know, Google and their slide and, you know, trying to keep people on their campus. This is a little bit of a different model because it's not that campus idea. Like Google, it's really Tony Shea saying, you know, give me downtown Las Vegas. Don't get in my way as I, you know, remake it. And, um, you know, those folks were so desperate that if if you're asking what they wanted, Mm -hmm. they wanted anything. Because they had nothing. So uh, we're talking about the creative arts as a lifeline yeah. to f- uh, f- fiscal policy. Yeah. I mean, Paducah, desperate. Yeah. You know, anything. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we can point at a lot of places who mm-hmm. are in this boat because of the, uh, you know, corporations that have either outsourced services, people, um, or have just picked up and, and left you know, completely. Well, we were talking about, you know, it's uh, Corning before, and yeah. Corning is still in Corning. Yeah. But how many big companies have picked up, left, moved to uh, gosh knows where, yeah. and all of a sudden what was once a boomtown or a thriving economy is now nothing. Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. one of those places that is desperate for creative economy. Yeah. 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 And yet the infrastructure is there. You know, I think about um, my husband's family is from Youngstown, Ohio, and I go downtown Youngstown, and the, they're just gorgeous buildings, incredible. And you think, wow, if somebody had in a, a vision 
to bring this city back and to pump some capital. The, the bones of those buildings are stunning mm -hmm. in a way that you don't get when you plop some buildings down in the middle of a field somewhere. Um, and, you know, we like that sense of history. And is it an old bank building? I mean, I used to live, when, when I lived in Tribeca, I lived in a cheese, old cheese factory. And, you know, I was so proud when people came into my space. Oh, this was an old cheese factory. And it really does make you kind of like, can I still smell the cheese? <laughs> <laughs> We're in the Limburger wing. <laughs> but you love Ireland. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, in 2015, you brought a group of students to study abroad in Ireland. What happened over there? What did, what did the students learn? What kind of trouble did they get into? Who did they work with? Um, how long was the trip? Because yeah. it sounds like I really wanted to be on it, but yeah. I'm too old. <laughs> uh, after I so so the the previous um, presentation that I did that we were talking about uh, was part of a Fulbright grant, so I left my job at IC for four months and went on a Fulbright to Ireland and worked at the National University um, in, in Galway and did, you know, did, did this research that I've described about the um, rural entrepreneurs, uh, arts entrepreneurs. At the end of that time, I got very close with some of these entrepreneurs. And at the end of the time, I was sitting down with, you know, my buddy who runs the Galway International Arts Festival and said, wow, I need to come back and I need to bring students. Will you let them work at the festival as volunteers? Will you find a place for them? He said, yes, we shook hands. It was all great. You know, I he said, follow up with Hillary. So I did that. And um, we, I created from scratch a program about these students coming and learning about festival economics while volunteering mm -hmm. at festivals. So they got there and they worked at the Galway, it's called Film Fla. Fla is an um, Irish word for festival. So the first week was the Galway Film Fla. And the next two weeks were the Galway International Arts Festival, which is a multi-arts festival, not film, but kind of everything else. It's um, music, wonderful theater, um, and some dance. Uh, so the students volunteered for the three weeks. Uh, they had some classroom time with us. We met twice a week for class um, to get a little background on the, just exactly this creative economy idea, this relationship between, you know, what kind of money does a festival pump into its local economy? When all these people come from out of town, you know, stay in your hotels, eat in your restaurants, and bring their happy memories of your place back to their town and tell their friends and, you know, maybe they come and stay, you know, it's, it's really like a, a ripple effect that just yeah. keeps rippling. Um, and, they, you know, there's a lot of good data about um, the impact of festivals on local economies, but it's easier to see in a rural area because it's like, oh, yeah, here was the baseline. Yeah. And then, you know, July 14th, you know, all hell broke loose and you couldn't get a hotel room, you know, to save your life. So um, that's what the students basically were learning. And um, they had a great time. You know, one of the students uh, was, you know, the head of, selling concessions for the entire, entire Galway International Arts Festival, which was not food. It was stuff, you know, T-shirts and bags yeah. and things. Swag. Yeah, swag. Um, you know, a, a whole team of students were uh, on the marketing and particularly making short films um, that they would post. Uh, they'd do Instagram takeovers of the festival um, and be sort of stationed at key events that the festival organizers wanted them to cover. How long were they over there for? They were there for a total of three weeks, a little, maybe a little more than that. Um, and, uh, you it know. It sounds like they were doing tons of amazingly fun things. Yeah, yeah, they were. And, uh, interestingly, the majority of the students on this trip were park students and from all different majors in parks. So, um, let's explain to the audience okay. what a park student is. Yes. Cause, yeah. Yeah. So I'm in the department of theater arts and my students are theater arts management students. 
and we're in the School of Humanities and Sciences. But another school at Ithaca College is the Park School of Communications. And just as it says, those are all communications degrees, which, as you can imagine, have exploded and changed and, you know, trickled out. It's a wonderful um, uh, set of majors. Some of those are television and radio, um, photography, uh, documentary film, um, integrated marketing and communications, communications management and design, on and on and on. So how did those students get over on your trip? Uh, it was, it, I mean, there were some clusters that said, let's go to, you know, most of the students just wanted to come to Ireland. You know, we're really... I don't blame them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the summer. Um, and, you know, we, we conferred two credits. So, um, and actually for the park students, they need credits outside park, da-da-da. So it was great for them to get theater credits. Yeah. Um, also my colleague who went with me, uh, Andrew Utterson, is a um, film historian and so he had students who had taken some of his courses, so he brought some of those along with him. It, uh, you know, it was a bunch of networking. I mean, um, I think just the fact that we were going to Galway and, and a lot of students had heard some buzz about it, um, you know, it, it really was a bunch of personal factors. Mm -hmm. But then when we presented it, um, I would say almost all of the students who came to our info session ended up applying. We, our target was eight students. We couldn't go without eight. We ended up with 16, which was over our limit. <laughs> but we just sort of felt like, oh, we can't take 15 and not take this last person. And so um, we changed things around. And so that was the challenge to find 16 placements right. for interns or volunteers, you know. Uh, but the festival was wonderful in, in helping us with that. And they were blown away by the students. I mean, they just thought they were wonderful, wonderful attitudes. Uh, they had talked about some other students from other schools in the United States, will, which will remain nameless. But, you know, they said what horrible attitudes the kids had and felt very entitled. And they felt they, that the Ithaca kids were just so open and respectful and hardworking, showed up on time, delivered really well with whatever it was they were supposed to be doing. Um, so which, you know, ranged, as I said, from, you know, your Instagram takeover and your one minute, you know, promotional film to your spreadsheets or to, you know, even painting um, flats for a set. Uh, it was really the kids just um, went for it. And, you know, obviously that reflected incredibly well on me and on any kind of future trip we decide, mm -hmm. you know, if, if we decide to do this again. So, um, Well, if you decide to do this again and you need an older, non-traditional student <laughs> to balance out your demographics, hint, hint, give me a call. $3,900 plus airfare. That's no problem. <laughs> I'm in theater. I can afford it. There you go. Excellent. Okay. Well, Susie Monaghan, it has been an absolute thrill and a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for making the time, and I apologize for being late. Thanks for having me, George. Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and our podcast can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. So if you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone who'd make some really good chat, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our intro and outro music is Surf Good, Surf Fast by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Thanks once again, and happy theatering to all of you.